Welcome to the Cannabis Equipment News Podcast. Hi, I'm David Manti, and welcome to the Cannabis Equipment News Podcast. With me today is Paulo Sobral. He's a consultant at Drink Cannabis, LLC. Thank you very much for joining me today. Great to be here, David. Thanks for having me. All right. Before we get started, please make sure to like, share, and subscribe to the podcast. You can also do us a favor by leaving us a positive review on whatever platform you use. Finally, to reach the podcast, you can reach me at david at cannabisequipmentnews.com. All right. So I always like to get started by asking a little bit about how you got into the cannabis industry. You know, what was it that uh, that brought you here today? Yeah. So that would go back to around 2014. Uh, I saw a documentary called The Culture High. And on that documentary, it was the first time that cannabis was really positioned to me as a wellness supplement. So you had this father on there and his name was Jason David. So he went to Harborside Dispensary up in Oakland, bought some CBD oil, and he treated his son with epilepsy with CBD oil. Mm-hmm. Come to find out that the son gets weaned off of all but three of the prescription pills he was taking in his life. And that just kind of opened up my eyes about cannabis and its potential. And you always heard about, you know, the medical use of cannabis, but I always thought that was kind of an excuse to get high, you know, mm-hmm. um, but it put me down this rabbit hole of research of prohibition. And you just come to find out that there's a lot of potential in this industry because um, I figured there'd be more and more people that educate themselves about the benefits of cannabis. And then more and more people would erase stigmas as they told other people. So I, at the time I was working at Pepsi and I was also looking to transition out of corporate environment and also sell something I could be passionate about. So. I tried it myself. First time was inedible. Uh, Actually, I got some flour at a dispensary in Bakersfield where I was working for Pepsi at the time. Research how to make a firecracker. Do you know what a firecracker is? No, I don't. So you decarboxylate the flour in an oven at 230 degrees. And then you get something that's fatty, like peanut butter is what I used. Crumble the decarboxylated flour on top of the peanut butter. You just make like a little sandwich of it, wrap it in foil and put it back in the oven. And that's a pretty basic edible that you can make with just a couple ingredients there. Had no idea how to dose it, but uh, yeah, I just kept telling myself that night that you're not going to die. Nobody overdoses <laughs> on cannabis because I already did my research. Um, so I did it way too much, but started dialing it down. And I was always doing it at night when I was by myself. So I was just kind of experimenting and it, it didn't cure epilepsy in me, but I liked it. So I said, what's the harm in this plan? Um, growing up, I was part of the D.A.R.E. generation. So I abstained from all uh, drugs until I started drinking alcohol around the age of 19. Uh, and I also played basketball. So that's why I figured I would start with ingestible products. Um, cause I didn't want to put anything in my lungs that would, uh, hinder my cardiovascular performance. So to me, it was more like something I enjoyed. Um, so while it wasn't, you know, life-changing for me as a, as a substance, um, I just said that, humans have a right to put things in their body that they want to put in their body. And somebody like me uh, does a lot of diligence before I decide to put things in my body. So I I just knew it was a matter of time before more and more people would enter this industry and become mainstream. And the fact that in 2014, it was still a risk. And I was working for Pepsi, one of the 50 biggest companies in the world. I I saw it getting more and more legitimate. So I decided to uh, just go all in, um, started, uh, doing some research on some companies, found a venture-backed company in San Francisco called Bloom Farms. Um, and they were operating out of an apartment in, in San Francisco back then. And they were a vape company. So I had never vaped until I went there and started interviewing with them. Um, but really what I was joining was the team that they had a really professional uh, brand. 
they gave back uh, meals to the needy with, with the profits they were making in the medical 215 market in California. Um, and they were also like me, optimistic that Prop 64 would pass later that year, which it did six months later. Um, but what I didn't anticipate is how slow that rollout would be in terms of the regulations here in California. So it's been a, a big challenge. I, I did think it'd be federally legal by this time when I joined the industry officially in 2016, but I know it'll happen in our lifetimes. And we're just seeing more and more cool consumer products that are going to broaden um, people's use of cannabis and broaden the addressable market. So I'm here to stay and fight through all the challenges, but that's how I got here. So after um, being with Bloom Farms, you said they were a vape company. When when was the point when you decided, I want to do cannabis beverages? Uh, so I always was curious about them when I joined the industry. So in, in the medical 215 market, we did have drinks back then. Um, my favorite uh, at, back at, at the time is Cannabis Quencher. He's still around today. Uh, CQ, Kenny Morrison, my, my friend who I just saw yesterday. Um, and it, they were the first one I bought. Uh, but uh, back, back then all the drinks were a hundred, uh, they were, uh, I think over a hundred milligrams. I'm, I'm trying to remember it was 2016. So forgive me, Kenny. Uh, but some of the drinks weren't even homogenous. So you would take a, a bottle and you would see back then you had clear bottles. You would see sediment on the bottom or you could see oil floating to the top. So if you get a hundred milligram drink, you know, it's like you're playing roulette. You don't know if it's five milligrams because you got the top of the batch or you, you're going to have 400 milligrams. So I enjoy them because they were tasty and I was pretty comfortable with cannabis. So me and my friends, we would take it and uh, go out and see what happens an hour later. Either we feel nothing or we're just staring at a wall, ordering a bunch of tapas at a restaurant. Um, but I knew coming from Pepsi that to build a, 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 a sustaining consumer brand, you need that consistency. And a consumer is not going to order their favorite beer if they don't know what the ABV is and then if they're going to have uh, be unable to drive after drinking one beer. Right. So um, so I, I uh, pivoted from Bloom Farms to sell point of sale for the compliant cannabis industry. Um, and then I took another pivot when that uh, the company I was representing didn't want to focus on the California market. Uh, and then a recruiter reached out to me and they told me about this company called Vertosa and they had a role opening for their first sales position. Um, in Vertosa, we were strictly a post extract processor. So we got other people's extracts, primarily oils, and then we emulsify them to be put into beverages. And now we're in, we, I'm not there officially anymore, but they're in about 80% of the beverages in the California market in the cannabis industry. Um, but that, that was the missing key is we needed the homogenous beverages for even this category to even start and sell outside of the people who just want novel cannabis use. Um, so I, I ended up working at Vertosa and I got to work with um, a, a wide spectrum of brands, everything from mainstream consumer packaged goods brands. We had Vitacoco as a client. Obviously, everyone knows about Lagunitas Hi-Fi Hops. Um, Paps Blue Ribbon, some of their employees started their own cannabis brand. Um, and now most recently, they, they're those pressed at GT's Kombucha's products finally about to hit the market, which is going to be a cannabis, uh, CBD, THC, and terpenes infused ad adaptogenic tea. Um, and then for outside of that, there was other companies under NDA where the, the marketing teams and the brand managers were all excited about cannabis beverages, but somebody had either, either legal or in one case, an insurance carrier uh, threatened to shut down the operation if they touch the plant. 
Um, but we also had a bunch of um, uh, brilliant entrepreneurs, uh, some entrepreneurs coming from the beverage space interested in cannabis, and then some cannabis entrepreneurs interested in cannabis beverages. So at the end of the day, I think it's going to be the largest consumer segment in cannabis. And the reason I say that is because you can, last night we were, uh, we're, we're testing out some cannabis beers here, um, not market yet, but I, I, well, first off, we started at the vault dispensary across from the Hall of Flowers in Palm Springs. Um, we had about five or six cannabis drinks there. We moved it back to this Airbnb where there's a hot tub there. We probably had another three or four. So that's eight cannabis products I ingested yesterday, all beverages. I'm not smoking eight pre-rolls in a day, and I'm not going to eat eight 10-milligram gummy bears in a day either. So beverages are just more sessionable. You get more units consumed. And then everybody drinks liquid. Not everyone's going to want to ingest something. So for the larger market and the federal market that I'm anticipating we're working towards, I believe can, uh, cannabis beverages is going to be the largest segment. And there's not enough people that are just narrowly focused on the category. So that's why I do what I do. Now, as we record this, you're uh, tell me where uh, tell me where you are right now, and uh, a little bit about the experience you've had there so far. So I'm in Indio, California, first time here. It's east of Palm Springs. And then Palm Springs is where we're, uh, it's hosting the first Southern California Hall of Flowers, um, largest cannabis brand to buyer uh, retail event. And uh, tell me about <clears throat> the jump from Pepsi to cannabis. Like, what was it like going from this huge multinational corporate entity and kind of jumping into an upstart category. Yeah, that was a huge uh, shift in a lot of ways. So uh, when I left Pepsi, I was in my early 30s um, and, and a lot of people on my team were in their 50s, 60s. So they were mentoring me. Uh, I'd be in deals where I would be the youngest person in the room by 20, 30 years sometimes, especially negotiating contracts with colleges and universities, which are, uh, you know, they're liberal in terms of mindset, but conservative in terms of uh lifestyle, I, I should say. Mm. And then you join the cannabis industry where now I'm uh, selling to buyers that are 10 years my junior. And <laughs> the, 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 I'm just going to tell the story. So the on my job interview with Bloom Farms, I'm riding along with the VP of sales who I saw at Hall Flowers. Um, if he's watching this, he's going to maybe laugh at this story. And uh, the final interview, he's doing a, a sales route in Sacramento and we end up at a dispensary and we're sitting in the parking lot and uh, we end up passing around a joint with the two buyers. And then the joint gets to me and I'm on a job interview. And I don't know if this is a test. And is the test, do I hit this to show that I'm part of this industry? Or is the test that I don't hit this to show that I'm a responsible employee, right? And worker. Um, so I ended up hitting it because I figured at the least, if I picked the wrong answer, it'd be a, uh, you know, a funny an a story for later on. But uh, long story, they end up hiring me. Uh, so... And you also come from Pepsi that just the way it's, it's a corporation is structured, they have an SOP on how to flip a light switch um, and then join the cannabis industry in the 215 days. It was sort of this gray market, as I call it, where it wasn't illegal, but it wasn't really legal either. It's just basically if you had the card, then uh, nobody bugged you when you traded medicine was kind of the mentality back then. So still not a lot of business practices. Uh, when I started working for that vape company, Bloom Farms, um, we didn't even have an inventory system at the time in terms of uh, the exchange from the warehouse to sales. And when I say warehouse, it was, it was apartment in San Francisco. So I'd pick up a box of vape cartridges worth about $5,000 wholesale and then just take it to a Toyota Corolla and then try to sell it to dispensaries and delivery services that are on weed maps. 
um, did some deals in Starbucks parking lots, McDonald's parking lots. Uh, you'd walk into a dispensary and I'd be there talking to the buyer about this polished brand we have. And then somebody comes in straight off the mountain in a t-shirt and flip-flops with a garbage bag of flour and unloads it and walks out with ten, twenty thousand dollars um, $20,000. So it really blew my mind just how, um, I, I guess, quasi-legal it was. Uh, but the thing I loved about it, and this wasn't true at Pepsi, is everybody that was in the industry was very passionate about it, and everybody was authentic as a human. Uh, I would be talking to a dispensary owner worth millions of do- dollars, and he's smoking a joint as he talks to me. And he's just more interested in why I'm in this industry, what I'm passionate about as a human, and um, but you know, it's it's kind of it, it kind of rewired me a bit because at Pepsi it was always hustle, go 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 go. Um, and then sometimes I had to learn that you had to sit down and talk to a buyer and owner for for an hour. Um, but it was really great to talk to them because everybody has a great story of why they entered the cannabis industry back then, at least. Um, nobody really stumbled into it. And nobody, uh, a lot of people weren't of the mindset of me where they were looking at the, you know, the long-term CPG business potential. Um, so I really learned to appreciate the culture, the people that fought for us to even be legal. And for me to be talking to somebody about it on a podcast openly, um, I wouldn't have done that even when I joined the industry. There was just too much beef, uh, be too much too much fear in my mind. Um, so it's come a long way and, and I really don't know um, when we're going to be at the start of something this special that uh, this early, that's going to be this big where Pepsi, it was built before I was there and they're still doing fine when I'm gone. Um, so so it, there's a lot of positives about the shift, but the negatives would be, you know, just the lack of resources, how hard it is just to get basic things done in this industry, the the packaging regulations and the the the, the state tracking systems that don't really do a good job of even tracking where the product's going, but just add a ton of inefficiency to ADE, you name it. Those are all the negatives. But I, I think over time, as more and more people fall in love with this plant, they're going to demand more access. And uh, to get more access, we need to loosen up some of these regulations. So otherwise, it's we're just going to see the unlicensed market continue to thrive. Are you telling me that the hiring process at Pepsi was different from that at Bloom Farms? Uh, significantly different. <laughs> <laughs> they actually drug tested us at Pepsi, which I wonder yeah. if they still do that today. I, I have heard of more and more manufacturers not te- not testing for cannabis, at least. Right. Um, but still doing the, you know, standard screen for like opiates and such. Um, well, so you said back then that you saw the long-term CPG potential and now, you know, you call yourself a cannabis beverage fanatic. How long until, because right now, uh, cannabis beverages is still a niche category. Sort of what's the timeline before you see it, you know, realizing its true potential. Yeah. So the part, the event we were at yesterday was in a consumption lounge uh, called the vault in Palm Springs or Cathedral City. Um, so, so what happens when you walk in there, it's just basically a room where you can freely consume. Um, and there's was, there was some people smoking, uh, but most of it was drinks. It ha- happened to be that they were free that day, but drinks are meant to consume in social settings primarily, right? So you think about it, any social event you go to, there's some drink feature there. You go to a wedding, there's a toast. You have a business meeting at a coffee shop or a happy hour. Um, it, it's a ritual of our lives. Uh, so at, at Vertosa, um, the team there really advocates all their employees read the, this book called The History of the World in Six Glasses. Um, so on that book, they highlight uh, six drinks and two compounds are in each of those drinks. 
there's two compounds featured, three caffeinated beverages and then three beverages with alcohol. So beer, wine, um, spirits, Coca-Cola, coffee, tea. Uh, so they're all intoxicating substances. They all talk about how those uh, beverages formed around either some ritual or some belief. Um, and cannabis has potential to be that. Uh, but to get there, we need to sell cannabis beverages where other beverages are sold. And it's as simple as that. Uh, I go and talk to dispensaries right now, and they'll point out that their beverage sales are slow. Uh, you find out they don't even have a cooler in there. Nobody wants to buy a ready-to-drink beverage and have it take it home and have it be chilled. Um, so just picture when you buy beverages today. You might be in a gas station, and you're not there to get a beverage, but you're thirsty. Uh, or you're going to return your dry cleaning and they have a vending machine outside. Um, you're at a bar. You walk up and order a beverage because you don't want to walk around the bar with empty hands. You're at a party. Somebody hands you a beverage. You're going to have a barbecue. You're going to go to the grocery store and, uh, and uh, stock up on 30 or 40 drinks. Uh, any of that doesn't involve a trip to the dispensary. Um, so it's very unlikely that somebody goes and gets something that they consume throughout their day, wants to find parking, wait in line, show somebody ID. Uh, maybe they don't want to see a bunch of bongs and paraphernalia while they're doing that as well. Um, so for it to, it to thrive in the dispensary channel, they need to have a variety of drinks um, to cater to different tastes and different consumers, different parts of the day. Uh, and it needs to be readily available at point of purchase. Uh, I don't think that will happen anytime soon in dispensaries, but the alternate channel that we have coming online in California are the ones I just described, like the consumption lounges. Uh, they're they're going to build out bars where they can make premium cocktails and actually open the drink and mix it with other uh, non-cannabis uh, non beverage spaces. So it'll look exactly like an alcohol bar, but cannabis bar with live entertainment there. And then also potentially some food that can be brought in from the outside. Um, and so in West Hollywood, I believe they're going to actually allow food to be in, uh, featured with the cannabis as well. Uh, and then also delivery services. So uh, COVID's changing consumers' behavior where they're getting groceries delivered at home. And I think more and more people are going to get their cannabis delivered at home. Uh, so if they're getting their cannabis delivered at home, if the delivery service is able to carry cases of drinks, which is a challenge in the current regulations in California specifically, then uh, we might see more and more consumers subscribing and buying a, a case or two at a time once they fall in love with the drinks. But it's an uphill battle just to get them to try it. So I'm really uh, bullish on the consumption lounge uh, model that's coming online because that'll spread a lot of word of mouth. We'll be able to feature entertainment and bring them in for things other than, than cannabis. And even some of those lounges are being bold enough to not allow smoking indoors as well mm -hmm. so that people can really feel like it's a beverage experience. But I view the category as beverage with a heavily regulated compound in it. That is a great compound. It's the best drug that's been put into liquid in my mind. Um, but, but to get to, to where it's going to ultimately reach critical mass, it needs to be regulated like alcohol. Tell me about, <clears throat> uh, you mentioned packaging regulations, right? What are some of the areas that are lacking when it comes to packaging? And I've heard a lot about labeling problems as well. What are you seeing in the industry and what are some of the changes that need to be made in order to have a little bit more consistency? Yeah. So this is a, uh, actually, I just got this bottle of, uh, somebody brought it to me yesterday, but this is GT's product. Um, so you have this, the medicine, medicine pill topper here. So this is just three milligrams of THC, seven milligrams of CBD in a, in adaptogenic tea. A three-year-old can drink this and they might not even feel anything, or they might just say they feel funny or sleepy. And I'm not advocating for a three-year-old <laughs> to drink it, right. but my point is 
a beer is a lot easier for them to open and drink and a bottle of tequila is even easier because they put those corks on top and that will kill them. So there's no logical sense in the world why you're going to allow those to not have child resistant uh, packaging, but you require adaptogenic tea to have this. So this add cost as it adds cost, obviously the consumer is going to ultimately pay for that. Uh, and this recently changed in California, but they weren't allowing you to put anything in a clear bottle as well. So that also adds cost. Um, and it, for certain products like rosé wine, maybe you want to feature the appearance of, of your liquid and that's part of your brand. Uh, so those are the two main challenges in, in the packaging that, that are um, hindering the category from the way I see it in California specifically. Um, labeling specific labeling, um, I'm not sure what you're exactly referring to there. Just in terms of uh, like uh, consistent labeling, not just in uh, from state to state where there's one uniform label for cannabis products that say that has traceability as to where it was grown and uh, dosage stuff like that. Got it. Yeah, there's no consistent standard amongst that. You're right; it does have to change from state to state. So what you'll see is a lot of times they uh, can you see this? They apply yeah. a sticker um, that identifies the batch and then the potency for that batch was tested at. But um, but also on the labeling here. So the, here's a really innovative product from my partners. I actually worked on the product development with this on Evertosa. So these are Cohen. They're cannabis cordials that have okay. really targeted effects. Uh, so it's a really special product in the sense that they, they formulated a blend of cannabinoids and terpenes to achieve the, the desired effects here. So this one's play. And on the package itself, on the carton, we're able to put a lot of educational information. Mm. Uh, so it would be, in, it'd be, it'd be, um, be favorable to put some of that information on the vial, but we have such a small form factor here. Right. And then the challenge is we have to put this on the, on the vial per the regulations. But the problem is as they enter other markets, it's going to be something different. So there's right. no consistency there. Uh, and obviously that's a, a bit challenging for the brand equity and the consistency across the brand, um, on the vial itself. Is a lot of, is one of the biggest challenges education or allowing the consumer to know what to expect in terms of a beverage experience? Not from my experience. So I, I do a very casual pitch if it's somebody who's not interested in cannabis or unfamiliar with cannabis. I basically, the, I give them the story that led me to be comfortable with experimenting on cannabis. Hey, you're not going to die. You're going to feel it within 10 minutes. So that's a huge benefit of this beverage form factor is the emulsification technology. Uh, we break it into billions of tiny little droplets. I'm sure you hear the term nano size, nanometers. Um, so they're either nano or micro size. Uh, and the hypothesis there is the droplets are so small when they get encapsulated that it penetrates the blood-brain barrier in your mouth and the permeable skin under your tongue and in your gum lining. So that's why you feel it within 10 minutes. So if I tell them it's low dose, you're going to feel it within 10 minutes. Uh, you just sit there basically with the stopwatch and 15 minutes from now, you ask them how they feel. I'm like, hey, I feel pretty good. I'm like, okay, the, the off-ramp's about three or four hours. And now they tried it and they think it's tasty. They feel good then they're already sold. They don't need to be educated on what it's doing or how, how it's doing what it's doing. Nobody got educated on caffeine. They just started drinking it as kids, right? So yeah. it's mainly just erasing the stigmas and making them feel comfortable about it. 
but what I never like to do is be in people's face and telling them why it's better than alcohol. And I think it is, but you don't have to agree with me. I just tell them why I like it and then uh, kind of easing their anxiety. And then after that, the product kind of sells itself. Why do you like it better than alcohol? Uh, well, simple. I, I, I First of all, I like I love the flavor of alcohol. Um, I love tequila. I love beer. Um, but as I get older, uh, I can only handle one or two beers before I start to feel bloated and need to take a nap. Uh, and I never exceed two or three drinks anymore um, because then the hangover isn't worth it. So you get an hour or two of fun. You wake up with acid reflux and hungover the next day. I have too much to do. Um, so really, that's the simplest answer. But Outside of that, we're just scratching the surface with the functional benefits of, of cannabis, working on this product line, and then uh, having products like Piruana here. So Piruana is a live resin powder. Um, so this live resin powder, it's it's marketed towards the strain aware consumer. Uh, but I, so I'm strain aware, but I like strains because of the way they make me feel. So there's certain strains I like to take before I work out. Um, so we have XJ13 is this strain right here, and this is five milligrams. So I pop this into cold green tea before I work out. And now it's my favorite energy drink because I have a little bit of caffeine, but really what I'm building is that mind body connection. So as I'm doing stretches and different exercises, I can feel the individual joints and muscles in my body. Um, and obviously alcohol is never a performance enhancer unless you're talking about socially. Um, so really it's, if you're, if you're taking it to chill or relax or in, in the place of alcohol, you're just going to wake up with uh, no hangover and have less calories. Um, but on top of that, we have hundreds of cannabinoids and terpenes that can really unlock fun functional benefits of cannabis. So it's not only better than alcohol, but it's also better than a lot of functional products out there. You've had a lot of experience now with uh, various beverage manufacturers, and you said Piruana, which does the powder. Um, do you have a preference when it comes to the emulsification process or technology? Is uh, some companies doing it better than the others? Uh so uh, the analogy I like to use with um, emulsion technology or any active ingredient delivery system is think of it as a car, right? So uh, let's say THC is the compound we're putting in a drink. The THC is the passenger. So how do we get that compound in the drink? So picture you at walking into a car lot and then the car person, the car salesman says they have the best car and they just tell you that up, up front. How do they know that without asking you questions? You can be a guy that goes backpacking and you need a four-wheel drive off-road vehicle. You could be a mom with six kids and you need a minivan. You can be a young 22-year-old billionaire son and you want to show off how wealthy you are, so you need a Ferrari. Um, so those are all correct answers for three different people. So the best delivery system for, for your beverage is dependent on what you're trying to achieve. So at Vertosa, I, I want a lot of business because I would ask clients, uh, what's, what's in your base? What's your manufacturing process look like? Mainly the sterilization method. You want to know the time and temperature extremes. What type of vessel it's going into is really important. Um, and I, we haven't even touched on the consumer experience with any of that. So uh, what type of effect are you trying to achieve? Like, do you want to create play or calm? Uh, how do you want it to feel in the consumer's mouth? How quick do you want the onset to be? What does it want? What do you want it to taste like? If you emulsify terpenes and add them into it, then that's going to obviously uh, alter both the flavor and the efficacy. So it's a lot of questions, but but once you know what they're trying to achieve, it's still a challenge. Uh, and then even when you put it into a, a benchtop production, you don't know what the stability is going to be with over time. 
because um, there could be some compound in the base that you've never tested with the emulsion technology itself. So really, um, to find out what happens, it's a lot of monitoring. Um, so it's either you, you you store it at ambient temperature and just watch it physically and see if there's any separation occurring. Um, but you should also do some third-party lab testing to see if there's any potency loss over time. So really, it's it's the company and their commitment to protecting their clients' equity is what you should be looking for from a company that's going to do any work on your beverage itself, whether it is uh, emulsion technology or, or even your packaging supplier. Uh, they need to at least be aware of potential challenges when it comes to potency loss because the consumer, um, the most damaging thing for your brand is you are promoting something in terms of the uh, the effect and the consumer doesn't achieve that effect and they're just not going to buy it again. When you're working with potential customers or clients that are manufacturing a product, how often do they have answers to all those questions? I mean, are they more on a fact-finding mission when they approach you, or do you, are they more focused on exactly what they're looking for in a product? So people, um, I, people have worked with me that were already in market, and they, either they were just trying to solve one problem, uh, and then people have come up to me with just a pitch deck, and then some people have come up with me and saying, hey, I'm interested in this category. Um, can you tell me more? And what are some white space you see out there? So all, all of the above, honestly. Um, and, and that's what's been um, really valuable to me as a consultant is I've worked with 20, over 20 brands at least at this point uh, that are in market. Uh, and they all have different challenges and they all have uh, different competencies in their team. So really when, when I consult, I, I believe in this category long-term and I'm here to support the growth of this category. So what I look for is the, the project and the team, I think, that are going to drive growth in this category. And then I, I find out what, what potential scope the gaps there are within their team. And either I have that knowledge myself or I know people that are experienced in that. Because um, it was really a privilege working at Vertosa that we, we, uh, we did take such a dedicated approach to ensuring our clients' brand equity was protected that I got to work with a lot of top top um, supply chain solutions that were focused on the category as well, from packaging people, manufacturing experts, um, flavor formulators, you name it. Um, so all those people are in my network and I know how to connect good people with people that are doing innovative things in the category. Um, but I'm here to support and it's really the people and the projects I look for. And then I put in my knowledge and expertise based around where, where I can add the most value. When it comes to adding value, how is it that you help companies looking to market cannabis? You talk about how the product is displayed at the dispensary. What are some of the other things you do to help them out? Uh, the, the main value I bring to them is uh, everyone looks at what's true today in cannabis. And I've been in this industry almost six years now, and it's rapidly evolved in the six years I've been into it. In, into it. Um, so I always point out to them, uh, you know, the uh, one of my favorite stories, and I don't even know if this is an exact quote, but I keep repeating it. But Steve Jobs said, um, people don't know what they want. You have to tell them what they want, right? So uh, he, he, invented, he designed the iPhone um, and then the iPod he didn't really look at what the existing mp3 players and the existing smartphones in the market were doing he said how do i design something where everybody wants it um so he really opened up the mass market so uh, obviously uh everyone knows that in california specifically 100 milligram drinks is what's dominating the market share and that's because people are buying drinks to sell to the heavy cannabis user that are doing a lot of shopping in dispensaries today um, so one of my case studies in terms of a brand is is Can C A N N, which I'm sure a lot of people have heard of. So the, they have such an authentic story because Jake and Luke, the founders, they were uh, 
to older millennials getting into their older years that like me, they just wanted less hangovers, but they still wanted to be social with their friends. So they thought about um, <coughs> creating a social tonic uh, that had a little bit of a buzz so you can still have a vice. And that's how can was born. So then they started marketing it to also other people that were abstaining from alcohol for non-moral reasons, just for health reasons. Um, so when I, when somebody approaches me and wants to know how to brand and market a product, I, I take away all the cannabis thinking and just go back to CPG roots. It's, you know, you have to think about who you're selling it to and how you can inspire them to try it and how you can make them very happy with spending money on your product. And then I take my cannabis uh, operational expertise and, and bring in that cannabis nuance to the brilliance they might already be, have if they just get the fact out of their mind that it shouldn't be any different just because they're uh, making a cannabis product. It's just traditional CPG consumer marketing and and, uh, and brand development. But you just need to think about a little bit of uh, uh, different details because we are dealing with the compound that's regulated like nuclear waste, unfortunately. Um, Advertosa, you said that you worked with the Paps Blue Ribbon uh group that spun off of the company. You know, some people are talking about big tobacco coming in and being influential once the cannabis market opens up. Do you see large beverage and alcohol manufacturers coming into the space as well? Uh, the manufacturers will be slower to come on, but yes, um, they, the challenge, the reason they're not today is uh, if they're, if they're working on cannabis, they're not supposed to be touching um, products that are, um, under the FDA's jurisdiction. So they either have to spin off their business or, um, or, or open a separate facility. Actually, they'd have to do both. Uh, but when it's federally legal and everything's allowed to be on the same equipment, for sure, they're going to do it. But what I really think you'll see first is the distributors and, and big alcohol are going to enter the space because um, that's really their game. It's, it's, they, they, they develop retail relationships. That was what Pepsi did too um, because they have such a broad portfolio of our iconic brands. And when you own distribution, you, you plug in uh, your own products into that network and your own innovation. And they really look for, uh, for brands that are um, capturing some market share that are innovative. And then they just look to acquire those brands and plug them into the distribution network. So I believe the distributors will enter the space first. Obviously, we're going to need some regulations to change for a lot of them to do that. Uh, and then the manufacturers will follow after that. But we need a lot of regulatory changes before any of that starts to really happen. You said when you got back, uh, when you got into the industry a few years ago, you had, you would have expected it to be federally legal by now. What are your expectations going forward? I mean, do you foresee it happening anytime soon or uh, do you think it's still going to take a bit? Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not really predicting what politicians are doing anymore. So it's <laughs> probably a good call. <laughs> yeah. So my, my form of activism is just, there's a lot of people I can put a product like this in front of that wouldn't be thinking about cannabis and they'll try this and they'll like it. Mm -hmm. And they, they try it. They like it. They tell somebody else, that person tells somebody else. So my form of activism is just easing these stigmas and making cool by making cool consumer products that are approachable by a wide spectrum of people. Um, that seems to be a healthier approach for my mental well-being than worrying about what politicians are going to do. You've worked as an employee at a company before. You, now you're a consultant at the head of your own firm and you get to work with multiple companies at the same time. What do you prefer? Do you prefer the consultant role where you know you have your hand in a lot of different uh, products or do you prefer to sort of be a part of uh, one company? I, I look at it more as a, I have my mission and that's to get a lot of people drinking cannabis beverages. Um, so what's the most effective way to get there? 
the reason, the huge reason I left for Tosa is that I didn't get paid until something went into a bottle or a can. Um, so I would sit there and I would get clients that would commit to our services and we'd work on the product, but it takes years for some of these brands to come to market. Um, and, so there's other solutions that need to be, there's other um, problems that need solutions in the market for cannabis beverages to ultimately thrive. So by consulting, I've advised on some manufacturing solutions that will be coming online in California and in other states, Massachusetts as well next year. Uh, and, and I'm also working with some brands that are looking at some creative ways to go to market um, outside of what we've, we've tried in the past uh, year or two with cannabis beverages. Um, so it just lets me be agile, but ultimately, if there's a team in place that can get me to my mission, um, then I have no problems joining a team. Uh, and, and right now, I think uh, a lot of brands and, and are having the same challenges. So by being an individual, I'm able to help a lot of different people that have mutually, um, mutually, mutually mutual goals to solve these these challenges in the category and supply chain specifically. So at Vertosa, you didn't like what you didn't get your commission until the product was on the shelf until it was manufactured. So we were an ingredient supplier. So they would, uh, the product had to be fresh. So until they triggered a pre PO, cause they were ready to go into production. I would not get commission. Correct. Oh man. That's just uh that's a waiting game that, uh, could be difficult to live with, I guess. Uh, it was a challenge at times, but you know, it's, like I said, uh, somebody has to focus on this category and I'm really grateful for it. I definitely don't want to sound bitter because I learned a lot. Um, I learned a lot through my client's pain. Uh, and also I made a lot of great connections and a lot of those people are still persisting. And I, that's actually who I'm staying with is a client that's been trying to get their product to market for over a year and a half right now. And they ended up making me a partner. So it was a great experience for me overall. Um, but it just told me that, uh, we, we just need a lot of help in this category and there, we just need more smart people supporting this category. So um, by being independent, I could just focus my energy and time exactly where I think uh, the category needs it at any given moment. You talked about manufacturing solutions and consulting on the equipment side. Since we're cannabis equipment news, if uh, a manufacturer is looking to get into the beverage market, what are some of the key pieces of equipment that are necessary before they even get started? Yeah, uh, it really depends again on who, what type of clients they're trying to service. So, um, I have one of my partners. They uh, they needed a pasteurizer to bring their product to market. It's a living beverage, brewed beverage, if you can imagine what it is. Um, and at the time in in twenty last year, when they reached out to me, uh, nobody had an operating a pasteurizer in the whole entire state of California. Um, so they were they were faced with the challenge of either making a, a seltzer with flavor in it. Uh, something simpler or uh, finding their own solution. So I ended up getting a manufacturing license in East LA and they, they procured a pasteurizer. Um, but there's a wide spectrum of beverages you can make. There's machines out there that, uh, so a tincture basically, it's, they go up to four ounces. Um, so you're seeing a lot of shots into the California market now. Uh, and anyone who can fill a tincture can make a shot. Um, but now we're seeing, you know, the drink additives too. So powder, uh, this was given to me yesterday, my high, this is another powder. And then you have select squeeze, which is an Amio bottle that takes different machinery as well. So it really, it really depends on what you, you foresee the addressable market is in some States. I'm hearing that glass isn't allowed. Um, 
so obviously you wouldn't want to put in a machine that fills that but um you, I, it, I would see which market we're talking about first and then we would research regulations in that market and then we would research i know which brands are trying to enter that market most likely uh, and then kind of go from there but uh i i believe in this category so this should come in as no shock but you build it and they will come so you decide what you want to invest in it you put it up and then there's going to be people that want to use it you have so many products in front of you. And I understand that you're at a trade show right now, but how often are people sending you products just looking for your feedback? Uh, just looking for my feedback. Not that often. Usually they're trying to engage with me, but no, it's uh, probably like, what, maybe 10 samples a month is what I get. Okay. I'm just, cur- I'm just curious because the beverage market seems like such a small and close community that you know an expert like yourself... I have to imagine that you're pretty sought after. Yeah. So, so, but I also wanted, since you asked me that question, my feedback isn't as important in terms of whether I like it. It's whether somebody else will like it that you created the product for. So that's why I encourage a lot of people to enter the space and work together because beverages, you need variety, right? So mm-hmm. um, people know the rumor, you're drinking orange juice right now, even though they're, they, they love beer. It doesn't mean they like beer better than uh, orange juice better than beer. It's just this time of day, they prefer an orange juice. Um, so really to serve the consumer demand in this category, ultimately, we need a lot of innovative brands to enter this space. Uh, and and I think what in beverage specifically, you just need to be very specific with who you're trying to please with your product. Um, and their feedback is the most important. So um, it, it's really, uh, I, I've become an expert in this space just because it is heavily regulated and I have six years experience in cannabis and I worked almost six years in Pepsi. Um, but really, like I said, it's, it's not much more complex than just making tasty functional beverages that people love. And mm. we just get past the, the supply chain challenges, which we will again, um, then it's, it, this category is just going to take over America, I believe. Yeah, I guess I was uh, not so much taste testing, but, uh, you know, packaging, form factor, uh, stuff like that. Got it. Yeah, usually, um, usually they, if they're going to see, seek my feedback, they do it before they make all those um, decisions. <laughs> gotcha. Gotcha. Um, well, you know, before we get out of here, is there anything that, you know, we might have left out or anything in particular that you want to make sure the Cannabis Equipment News uh, listeners know about Drink Cannabis? Uh, not about drink cannabis, but just specifically on this category. Again, um, there's a lot of people that are committed to this category, uh, and I'm collaborating with all these people behind the scenes. So anybody who can support people in the manufacturing and distribution of cannabis beverages, that's where we need the most help with. Um, and also, if you have some innovative formulation or ingredient that you want to tell me about, then happy to take those resources in and see if either we can create a, a brand or product around something uh, of your tech that can utilize your technology, or perhaps there's something already in the pipeline that's looking for your solutions. You've mentioned a couple of specific products while we were talking. Are there any others that you've seen recently that you're particularly excited about? So uh, think about our the beverages we all love um, that don't have cannabis in it. We are starting to see more and more beverages that can stand on their own, even if they have no cannabis in it. So I always like to point out to the dispensaries that say beverages don't sell, that your same consumer is walking next door and spending six bucks on a kombucha or a latte. So now people are really thinking about crafting tasty beverages that can stand on their own. So, um, and more complex beverages. So we're going to see kombuchas, we're going to see tasty beers that can stand on their own. 
Um, but more importantly, uh, is I think the functional beverages are going to come online that are really embracing the efficacy of terpenes. Mm-hmm. So terpenes obviously have powerful flavor, which could be a polarizing flavor for a lot of people, but so is black coffee. The first time you have it, red wine, stout beer. Um, but terpenes also working on this Cohen line, uh, they really unlocked the efficacy uh, properties of terpenes as well. So we're going to have products coming online that are in smaller form factors that are going to be in liquid smaller form factors like this that are going to be alternatives to sleep aids, pain medications, Viagra, you name it. Um, But more and more people are going to really see the functional benefits of cannabis through these products. And I think it's going to trigger a lot of uh, research that's going to unlock the potential of this plant, even more so than it already has. And by doing that, I mean erasing stigmas to get more and more people to believe in it like you and I already do. Well, one of the things that I find most exciting about beverages in particular is how you mentioned how it's sessionable, that it's, you know, I mean, uh, when you go, like you said, when you go out to a bar and you've had X amount of beers and you're like, okay, it's been four hours. I've had four beers. This is what to expect. And that's one of the things I like about the cannabis beverage is that it hits you like you get it a little bit quicker, but it also kind of comes off a little bit faster as well. Yeah. We actually did blood tests when I was at Vertosa. Um, we ingested CBD and then we, uh, we all had our uh, veins tapped and they took it at different time intervals. So you see, you first see it start to come in about five to 10 minutes, and then you get a peak around 40 minutes in. And then the off ramp is about two to three hours or so. It's all dependent on how much cannabis you ingested, how much food is in your stomach, a lot of things, but just like any other active ingredient. But yeah, to, to your point, like a gummy, I love, I love edibles. Mm-hmm. Um, I do, but I only have them maybe two or three times a month. Um, not only does it take an hour to kick in, but six to seven hours is a long time commitment to be high. And I never have that luxury in my schedule anymore. I have my consulting business <laughs> and I have a newborn baby at home as well. Um, so like going camping, sure, I'm edibles all day. But outside yeah. of that, I really can't do it anymore. Um, but yeah, it, it's it's a huge value proposition to the consumer that it's more of a controllable experience than edibles. Well, congratulations on the newborn. I'm right there with you. How's the exhaustion? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I... Collaborating with CEOs that are also newborns, uh, parents, um, I asked them for advice and one of them told me something brilliant, said, you just got to schedule time with your kid and you uh, you treat that as your meditation time. You don't think about anything but taking care of that kid. And he was right. Like, it's, you're right. It's exhausting. I don't have a free minute to myself ever anymore, but uh, all positive stuff working on game-changing cannabis beverages and a little human that's going to hopefully do good things in the world. Hey, that's all we can ask for as parents, right? Exactly. Just do better. (laughs) Do better, be better than me. That's all I'm asking you to do. Excellent. Well, Paulo, thank you so much for joining me today, man. I really do appreciate your time. Likewise. Thanks for having me, David. All right. Before we get out of here, please make sure to like, share, and subscribe to the podcast. You can also help us out a lot by leaving the podcast a positive review. Finally, if you want to reach me, you can reach me at david at cannabisequipmentnews.com. It also came to my attention that some people aren't aware that we do have a website. That's CannabisEquipmentNews.com. You can find more information there as well. All right. For Paulo, I'm David Manti. This is the Cannabis Equipment News Podcast. We'll see you next week. Thank you for listening to the Cannabis Equipment News Podcast.